you have your Bible, please turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. We've been studying the book of First and Second Samuel and looking specifically at the life of David. And uh, this morning we come to chapter 12, and I said last week that I thought it was a really tough passage, and then I started to study this one. And in my opinion, this passage is way more in your face. Uh, God gets way more nose-to-nose with us in this passage uh, than even last week, believe it or not. I think you'll see what I mean as we look at this passage this morning. 2 Samuel 12, the passage will be behind me or also in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible. This is God's word. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other one poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. And it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. For he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against this man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, this man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he's done this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what was evil in in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. This is God's word. Let me pray and ask God to come and be with us this morning through his spirit. Let's pray together. Father, this is a tough passage. And we need you to come through your spirit and to teach us 
and to correct us and to train us and to rebuke us. Father, convince us that we're a whole lot worse than we think we are through this passage. And also, would you come and convince us that in you is more grace and mercy and love than we could possibly imagine. In the Lord Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we looked at chapter 11, if you were here, and we looked at David, who was David is the man after God's own heart. He is the king of Israel. Things have never been better in God's kingdom. And then last week in chapter 11, we see David hit rock bottom. We see the bottom completely fall out of David's life. He took, takes uh, Bathsheba, who is not his wife. He takes, uh, he's the wife of uh, Uriah, and David takes Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant. He lies, he hides, he covers up, and not only that, it gets worse. It spirals out of control until he eventually has Uriah killed. And not only is Uriah killed, but lots of David men, David's men are killed. And then at the end of chapter 11... If you remember, David tries to come out looking like the good guy, and so he takes Bathsheba to be his wife and says, come into my home, you can be my wife, I will help you raise uh, your child and all those sorts of things. But at the end, God's name's not mentioned in chapter 11 until the very last verse. The, The narrator wants us to know what God thinks about what David has done. And remember the last verse in chapter 11 says, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And it seems like David has gotten away with it. We don't know, if you don't know the rest of the story, you're thinking, man, David, this is going to fly under the radar and he's going to get away with this. And then we move into chapter 12. And after all the things that David has done in chapter 11, if you don't know the story, what do you think? and expect in chapter 12? Well, I can tell you what I expect. Maybe you would expect something like this. God to be done with David. After all the things that he's done, maybe you expect God to say, how could you? After how gracious I've been with you. And just kind of write David off and move on and say, the next king up, so to speak. That's what we expect, but instead of writing David off, we get something else in chapter 12. And yes, in chapter 12, we get consequences, to be sure. But in chapter 12, you know what dominates the narrative? The grace of God. The incredible grace of God to David. Why? Because remember what grace is. Grace is... God reaching out and reaching down to people who want nothing to do with Him and who rebel against Him and giving them what they don't deserve. That's what God does for David. This passage this morning, the main idea is the grace of God. And what we're going to see this morning is that grace sometimes is severe. Grace has an edge to it. Or as I like to say, sometimes grace has teeth. And so this morning, as we look at this theme of grace, I want us to see three things about grace that we learn from this passage. One, grace confronts us. Secondly, grace disciplines us. And thirdly, and finally, grace forgives us. So let's look at those three things. Number one, 
grace confronts us. Look at verse 1. It says that the Lord sent Nathan to David. And so right from the very beginning, we learn God's not a wallflower. God's not passively standing by watching from the sidelines. God is actively involved from the get-go in this story. And it begins with this word, send. The word send is only mentioned one time in chapter 12. You know how many times it's mentioned in chapter 11? Twelve times the word send is used. You might remember it. David sends someone to find out who the woman is that is bathing on the roof. David later sends someone to go get Bathsheba and bring Bathsheba to him. David sends Joab, sends for Joab, and then he sends Uriah back to him. David sends Uriah with a death sentence in his hand to go to Joab and to the front lines of the battle. And then Bathsheba sends to David the word that I am pregnant. Everyone is sending. And in chapter 12, it's God who starts doing the sending. It's God's turn to send. And in the very first verse, we see that God sends Nathan to David. And I want you to notice in the narrative and in the story how wise and how skillful Nathan is in his interaction with David. You see, David or Nathan is very wise in this story because he knows what guilt and shame do to people. Remember we talked about David's guilt and shame and it led to this downward spiral? Nathan knows that guilt and shame leads people to be defensive. And it leads us to um, blame shift and point the finger outside of ourselves. And so do you know what Nathan does? He doesn't barge in like we would do. He doesn't barge and knock the door down of David's house and say, How dare you? How dare you do what you've done? You murderer, you adulterer, you good-for-nothing king. No, David is wise. And he's very skillful. And so he does this and confronts David by telling him a story. And many commentators think that it might have actually been an actual case that he's presenting before David. Because back then, there was no separation of powers. The king served as both the executive branch and the Supreme Court at the very same time. And so the kings would receive these cases on a particular matter, and they were expected to rule on those, case, those cases there, right there on the spot. And so Nathan brings his case, either a real case or a hypothetical case, and look at the story. David's ready to rule, isn't he? And he's ready to rule very, very quickly on what he has heard. Look at verses 2 through 4. Nathan tells David this story, and he says there's a rich man who had tons of animals and uh, lots of uh, animals to pick from, but yet there is this poor man who has one little lamb. And notice it's very intentional how the lamb and the relationship with the poor man is described. And to really chunk it down, that lamb is described like he is one of the poor man's children, like he belongs to his family. He feeds it and eats from the table and drinks from his cup. That's very, very intentional. And notice the rich man, he says, then comes and he takes the poor man's lamb. He takes a member, so to speak, of his family 
and he kills it and he throws a party because the man didn't want to use his own. Look at verse 5. Well, David's furious. David starts to seethe and he starts to raise his voice and he says, this man that you've just described in this story deserves to die. And he wants to go find this man and hunt him down and kill him because he is so outraged. And notice it says, David said, this man had no pity whatsoever. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But then look at verse 7. Here's the punchline. You've heard me talk about this. This is the mic drop. Nathan drops the mic. And he looks at David and he says, you are the man. You are the man. This story, David, is about you. Because you are the power-hungry, selfish monster that had no regard for this other family. And you went and took her. This story is about you. And not only did you take her, you killed her husband. You, David, are the one that had no pity. You could, hear, you could have heard a pin drop in this moment. And David goes completely white and doesn't say a word. Why? Because his soul is pierced. He is cut to the heart. And the sin that he had been hiding for months is finally exposed and comes to the light. So what? What do we learn from this this morning? Well, we learned two things, and here's the first. Notice that David very easily, this should sound familiar because this is us, David very easily notices and diagnoses the sin in other people rather than diagnosing and seeing the sin in his own heart. He's blind to his own sin. He notices uh, the log in someone else's eye and not in his own eye, as Matthew Uh, Chapter 5 says, it says that David had no pity. And what's interesting is Nathan never said anything about pity. David inserts that into the narrative. Why? Because David knows that sin all too well. You see, David recognizes the lack of pity in the rich man's heart because he sees the lack of pity in his own. And there is a warning there for us this morning. And here it is. Friends, think about the sin that you see in someone else that irritates you and makes you furious. What is the sin that you see in someone else that makes you furious, that irritates you? Well, chances are that is your blind spot. Chances are it is that sin that you struggle with. It might be that the sin that irritates you It's because it's a sin that you know all too well. Secondly, we've been studying this idea of the normal Christian life uh, throughout the life of David. And one of the things we learn about the normal Christian life in this passage is that the normal Christian life involves really good friends. It involves community. It involves having people in your life like Nathan. And so here's a question Do you have someone like Nathan in your life? Do you have someone who will love you enough not to tell you what you want to hear, but will tell you what you need to hear and will confront you in your sin? Or as John Cox at our marriage conference has said, do you have the kind of friends that will stab you in the front and not in the back? You see, we need those kinds of friends, don't we? 
The Bible says we have blind spots. The Bible says there are things in our lives that we can't see unless someone from the outside points them out to us and helps, them, uh, helps us to see them. Do you have a friend that will help you see your blind spots? Many of you know this, but we are the proud owners of a golden doodle named Delta. We lived in Mississippi for uh, six years, and so to mark our time in Mississippi, we named our dog after the Mississippi Delta. So her name's Delta. And we've, this is first-time dog owners for our family, and so we have no clue what we're doing. But if you've ever dealt with a breeder, you know it can be very serious business. This is their livelihood. And so when we went to pick up Delta, our dog, from the breeder, they have this whole list of protocols on how you are to interact with your dog and uh, if they get sick, what to do, all these sorts of things. And one of the other things they talk to you about are things that they're not allowed to eat, such as chocolate, because the breeder very clearly says chocolate will kill your dog. And if your dog eats chocolate, you need to... Give her peroxide before it digests and it will foam up in her stomach and cause her to get rid of the chocolate by throwing up. Well, I'm thinking, uh, who's going to feed their dog like a candy bar or something? We're not going to do that. And so I'm kind of half listening. And we have Delta and she's in our house and Susie fixes some chocolate chip cookies, probably two dozen chocolate chip cookies. And again, new dog owners, clueless We set the cookies on the edge of the counter, and we're out playing in the backyard. The girls are jumping on the trampoline, and Susie goes, I've got the chocolate chip cookies that just came out of the oven. They've been cooling off. Let me go get them. She walks back into the house. (laughs) Every cookie completely gone. The plate is completely licked clean. Well, meltdown in the Sterling household. We're running around crazy looking for the peroxide, thinking, okay, how do we give this? We're like trying to pour the bottle in, like this is not making sense. And we're thinking this is a real situation that the owner or the breeder told us about. And so then we had the sense because we calmed down and we thought the dog bowl. (laughs) Mix it in with the water. Yes, that's what you're supposed to do. We weren't listening, remember? So we poured the peroxide into the dog bowl And she starts drinking the water. And I don't know if you've had this happen with your dog. I thought it was kind of a joke that there's no way this really works. Within five minutes, the dog is throwing up out back in our yard. That quickly, it happens. And I want you to think about, so she survived. It's all good. Peroxide really works. But here's the thing. Think about that story. From the dog's point of view, the dog thinks we, the owners, are completely nuts. Who are these crazy people? They're trying to kill me. It feels like trauma to the dog. But to the owners, you know, we knew exactly what we were doing because we knew this is what the dog needed in order to save her life. You see, that is a good picture of what it feels like, friends, when someone confronts you in the midst of your sin. That's a good picture of what it feels like when you're exposed and when you're caught in your sin. It feels horrible. It feels like trauma. It feels like God is trying to hurt you. It feels like God is trying to intentionally shame you or that he's being cruel to you for some reason. But what if God is trying to save your life? What if God has intentionally brought people like Nathan 
real friends into your life so that they could rescue you and save you from your sin? Could it be God's way of rescuing you? Could it be that God is actually loving you? When I was in campus ministry, many of you know I was in a campus ministry for 12 years. I know I talk about campus ministry a lot, but that's my experience. And so if I've seen this once, I've seen it a hundred times. A student would hit rock bottom, the bottom would fall out. They'd get a DUI. Uh, They would, public intoxication, thrown in jail. Uh, They would have something posted on social media that they did not want posted on social media that was very shameful. And they would come to me and they would be completely undone. And it's very painful. And I would look at them at some point in the course of the conversation and I would say, you know, God must really love you. God must love you a whole lot. And they would look at me like I had two heads and say, what? It sure doesn't feel like God loves me. And I said, no, God is being kind to you because you got caught, because you knew what you were doing was wrong and you would have never dealt with it on your own. You would have never on your own because you loved what you were doing. You would have never brought that to the light. And God loves you so much that if you won't bring it to the light on your own, God will bring it to the light for you. And that's what he did with David. In God's kindness, he confronted him. Something David wasn't going to unmask on his own. You see, it's God's severe mercy. It's God saving your life. You see, God will not let us remain comfortable in his grace. Let us remain comfortable in sin, but he will ruthlessly expose your sin so that you do not get stuck in it. Secondly, discipline. God's grace includes discipline. And here from the very beginning, you've got to hear this before we get into the rest of this section. This is not God's condemnation of David. This is God's transformation of David. This is not God rejecting David. This is God restoring and healing David. Because David, listen, God goes, this is not like writing him off forever. God uses David. He writes Psalm 51 out of this, which is the most well-known psalm perhaps in the history of the church. And this is important because what we're about to look at, friends, is very harsh, and you're going to think it's harsh, but what if God is not after David having a comfortable life? Because he's not. And friends, God is not after us having a comfortable life as much as I would like to think that is true. You know what God's after? He's after making you holy, and he's after a holy life, and that's what he's after in the life of David. And so he brings in discipline because he loves David. Look at verse 7 and 8. He says, I will anoint you king over Israel. I anointed you king. I delivered you. And he goes on and on and on saying all the things that he'd done for David. I've done everything. And if that's not enough, I would have done more for you. And so here's what God is doing in this section. He's saying, I want you to see how generous I've been with you. And I want you to put that next to your sin. And I want you to see the folly of your sin for what it really is. That's why he says in verse 9, look, he starts out, why? Why would you have done this? Why did you despise my word? He puts his 
grace next to his sin so that David will see it for what it is. And then look at verse 10. He starts rolling out the consequences because grace includes consequences. And sometimes we don't like that. We try to declaw grace. But God comes. And and listen, I want to skip over these verses if I'm honest. I don't like these verses. But they're really the core of the passage. They're the center of the passage And they really inform the rest of 2 Samuel and the rest of Samuel's life. So we can't skip over these verses, as hard as they might be. Look at verse 10. God says to David, the sword will not depart from your house. What he's saying there is, David, no longer will safety characterize your kingdom, but it will be characterized by war and conflict. Verse 11. Your wives will be slept with and taken. Side note, this doesn't mean that God supports multiple wives. God's condemned that in Leviticus and Exodus. He's simply describing the custom of the time. Verse 12, David said, you've been keeping this, or God says, you've been keeping this a secret, but I hate to tell you, this is going to be made public, and you're going to lose your reputation. And trouble characterizes David's household. And that's the primary theme for the rest of the book of 2 Samuel and really for the rest of David's life. And that is a hard pill to swallow. That is difficult for me to hear and it brings up all kinds of emotions and feelings. And one of the things is like, how could God do this? This seems really, really harsh. And then I am reminded as we... Take this through the cross of Christ. I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 12, which is that great chapter on the discipline and the love of God where God says, I discipline those that I love. And I'm reminded of all of my questions that I have. And I think this is way too harsh and painful. And then in chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews, verse 11, it says, well, yes, in the moment, all discipline seems painful. Or maybe, why God would you do such a thing? And then Hebrews 12, verse 11 at the end says, to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And I discipline you because you're my son, you're my child. And then what do we do with this? Well, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9, you submit to the Father, and listen to this, and live. You submit and live. What does this mean? Well, listen to this quote from Joe Novenson, who's a longtime pastor in the PCA. God loves his people so much that he would rather them limp wounded into his arms rather than them run healthy into ruin and destruction. Let me say that again. God loves his people so much that he would rather them limp wounded into his arms than they run healthy into ruin and destruction. Thirdly, God's grace. God forgives in his grace. And you look at this passage and you're thinking, whoa, that doesn't sound real forgiving to me. Well, hang with me. Look at verse 13. You see where God's taking David. He's taking him to no more excuses, no more blame shifting, no more covering up. And David finally gets to that place and look at what he says. I have sinned against the Lord. Notice the contrast between Saul, King Saul, who when confronted with his uh, sin, hardened his heart and refused to repent and turned his back on God. David does not do that. Eugene Peterson, 
says this, in the Christian life, our primary task isn't to avoid sin. Our primary task is not to avoid sin. Why? Because that's impossible. On the other hand, our primary task is to recognize sin and repent. That's exactly what we see. When David is confronted with his sin, he recognizes it and he turns back to God. And we're going to look at that in Psalm 51. And look at how Nathan responds. The Lord has put away your sin. It is forgiveness, but I think it's stronger than forgiveness. Some of your translations might say removed. So he's like taken this thing out of David's life, this sin. He's removed it as far as the east is from the west. And then he says, you shall not die. And I want you to think about this with me. Don't move past this really quickly. Because maybe you're thinking as you look at this, I mean, two verses? Two little small statements after all that David has done? That's too brief. I mean, David has done this horrible thing, and in the blink of an eye, you're going to tell me that God just cleans his record and wipes it away? That seems too easy. David is getting off. We want to see him grovel. We want nine months of just living in shame and weighing himself down, and we want David to come with us with an accountability plan and way he will never do this thing again. But what if that's the point? What if the point, the whole point of the confession and restoration is that we not focus on the sin, but we focus on the amazing grace, on the amazing love and forgiveness of God? Was David's sin awful? Yes, it was awful. Did it deserve consequences? Yes, and he got them. But sin will not win. Grace will win. I don't know what you're dealing with this morning and what you've brought into this room, but friends, your sin does not stand a chance against the incredible grace and mercy of God. In the blink of an eye, God takes your sin and he wipes it away as far as the east is from the west. And the narrator wants to be very clear that David did not earn this. He didn't jump through a bunch of hoops. He's not beating himself up. No, the author is making very clear that God stands ready to forgive sinners like us who have done really horrible things. The narrator says, this is not about David's character. This is about the character of God. But friends, don't think for a second that for God to do this, that it wasn't costly. Because David, actually, according to Old Testament law, he deserved to die for what he has done. Someone has to pay. Someone has to die. Someone has to shed blood, and they do. And if you look at verse 14, it's actually David's son. Verse 14, yes, David, I forgive you. But nevertheless, you have scorned me, and your child will die. Do you see it? Do you see substitution? You see the gospel, this child of David's will die as David's substitute. He will die as in David's place. And that should sound very familiar. It should sound like the gospel. You see, the wages of sin, the Bible says, is what? Death. 
And the Bible says that every single person in this room has fallen short of the glory of God because of our sin. And we have sinned against a holy and righteous God. And there's a huge gulf between us. And someone's got to pay the debt. And you can pay the debt. Or God can pay the debt. And instead of you paying the debt, God says, I will pay the debt. And I will do it not by killing you or your child. I will do it by killing mine. God comes and says, I will take the sword, the sword that deserves to fall on your house forever and all eternity, but I won't take the sword against your house. I'm going to take the sword against my house. Isn't that amazing? I'm going to take it, the sword down on my one and only son so that I can be with my people forever. See, that is why Jesus had to go to the cross. Someone had to pay the debt. And Jesus paid the debt in that moment for all of your sin on the cross. And that's why he says it is finished. Because he paid that debt in full. And when you receive the Lord Jesus and come to him, he looks at you this morning and says, I have removed and put away all of your sins. As far as the east is from the west and you shall not die, you are forgiven. Dean Smith is the former basketball coach for the North Carolina Tar Heels. And he had a great reputation for keeping his players in line and keeping them out of trouble. But there was this one particular year where a player got in trouble with the law. And instead of coming to him, he completely disappeared and fell off the face of the earth. He sneaked into the practice facility one day after weeks of being gone and He catches Dean Smith's eye, and Dean Smith grabs him, pulls him into his office, closes the door, and sits him down, and says, why have you been running from me? Don't you know I'm the only person in this city that can really help you? Some of you this morning are running from God. You're running from God this morning because you're afraid of what he might do to you in the midst of the things that you've been doing and in the midst of your sin. And what I want you to do this morning, whatever it is that you've brought into this place, place the mercy and the love and the graciousness and the forgiveness and the love of God next to your sin and to your shame and to your guilt and blame shifting. And when you place those two side by side and when you see how good and gracious God really is, it makes no sense whatsoever to keep running away from God. And this passage this morning is a call to us to stop. Stop running away from God and making excuses. Because God, just like Dean Smith to that player, God is looking at us and saying, stop running. Don't you know I'm the only person in the universe that can help you? Let's pray. Father, we are weary this morning. Our souls are weary and we're thankful that you love us with a love that will never let us go. Would you give us a Nathan in our life to help us see what we can't see? Would you give us the grace to turn from our sin and to stop running and to run to you? 
to receive your mercy and forgiveness. Lord, we thank you. This is Thanksgiving, and we're thankful for the grace that you give sinners like us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.